0: Hi there. My name is Richard Hurley, um, Features and Debates Editor at the BMJ. And today I'm joined by James Barrett, who's a consultant psychiatrist at the Charing Cross Gender Identity Clinic and president of the British Association of Gender Identity Specialists. And I'm also joined by a service user called Nina. And today we're going to be discussing um, some of the issues surrounding gender dysphoria and how trans people um, receive care in the NHS. Um, Nina, can you um, tell me about your experience with the NHS? Right,
1: Okay. So I'll start off with with my GP experience. When I first approached my GP, um, I was worried that I wouldn't be taken seriously because it was relatively a new... um, You know, it was a new new branch of medicine um, in their eyes. And I was also worried that my doctor, who who I'd been with for all my life, would divulge this information to my family so I had to ask um, for a different doctor just to be sure Um, and I got a female doctor which I I thought would be more understanding which she was, she referred me to um, a psychiatrist, uh, not straight to the gender identity clinic so I saw a psychiatrist and um, he then referred me to the gender identity clinic Um,
0: is this is this in the very recent past, Nina? How long ago are we talking?
1: Oh, we're we're talking um, two thousand and seven. Okay. So I attended the gender identity clinic. Um, I was asked, you know, the various questions. They talked about my life journey so far and what I intended to do and what I wanted to do. And I felt quite comfortable. Um, in terms of treatment, we we followed um, the the Harry standard, Harry Benjamin standards. Um and it wasn't until I got to my GP I had to swap G doctors within the same practice because um yeah. my previous GP had left the one the female and I got a male doctor. Um and we started discussing um what I wanted to do and the you know there was a shared agreement with Charing Cross. Um And I got told that they were going to refuse treatment, which upset me because um, you know I needed this to be done, and I couldn't swap doctor doctor surgeries because it was the same PCT. So I had some issues there.
0: So sorry, at this point, before you'd just started any treatment or any?
1: Correct. This this was when when I had um, I told my it was at the stage where I just changed my name, and I was ready to receive treatment. So I, I changed my name legally, so I'd, I'd taken that that kind of plunge legally and changed my name. so you know I was committed to doing this. and um, I went into my GP with with the letter from the doctor, from the gender identity clinic and essentially they they kind of said, well, the drugs that they wanted to use for me were unlicensed for that purpose. and they um, I wrote it down. The clinical commitment was too much. I, I got the kind of impression they thought that I was going to be visiting them every week wanting assistance and um, I got refused uh, treatment. And how did that feel? Well, um, yeah, very disheartening. You know, they were saying, well, sorry, you're going to have to find another doctor. And it's like, well, who's going to want to take me on? You know, straight off, straight off, going through this treatment. If he, if he, you know, if my doctor found it expensive, what are the other doctors gonna think? So in the end, I read about something called risk-to-benefit ratio, which doctors use to determine about treatment. And so um I wrote my doctor a living will. And I said, Well, you're not gonna you're not gonna do the treatment, you're trapping me in a male body. I don't want this. You know, this is a, a do not resuscitate. And I said, um, you're the only one that's aware of this. You're going to have to let my family know when something happens. And uh, that was on the Monday and on the Friday. So um, you're
0: saying that, you, you know, it, it made you feel suicidal. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. 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 It was at the point where um, I just thought, well, what's what's the point in living in a body? I don't want and a life I don't want because they're not willing to help me, even though I've gone down the formal route.
0: And how did the letter go down then?
1: I think they were a bit shocked. I think he was a bit shocked because on the Monday, I gave it to them. On the Thursday, he said, "Can we see you?" And I said, "Well, what's the point?" And he said, "Well, we're we're looking at treating you." So it wasn't until it got really serious that.
0: So you had to threaten suicide before 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 you got movement on this.
1: Yeah, and I felt horrible doing it, but it was the only way at the time. It was the only way and it wasn't a threat. I would have taken my life a couple of weeks later. You know, it wasn't just a threat, it was actually I will carry this out. It's you know, if, if if the GP who is who is in control of the of the medicines and everything else, it wasn't gonna help, then what what could I do?
0: James Barrett, what what's going on here?
2: Well, I think it's we sadly a Nina story is one that I'm pretty familiar with and it can, can get worse than that um, sometimes. Some GPs fail to treat or fail to prescribe and will say that they've been given insufficient information um, and then if you give them a bucket load of information they then complain how can they possibly be expected to read this large volume of stuff and it must be terribly dangerous and expensive. Um, some, I'm never sure whether to kind of admire them or, um, or be horrified, but some are remarkably frank and say things like, well, it's, you know, it's against my religious principles to do this, or, or a recent one about six weeks ago, um, we were trained to, um, to treat illness, not to change nature, so I'm not going to be doing this. Um, sometimes, I think, slightly spurious objections are raised, and Nina's given a good example, the, um, this isn't licensed for this indication. But the same GPs of course are are pretty free and easy about prescribing hormones to regulate periods in women who've got irregular or heavy periods. But of course the contraceptive pill isn't licensed as a period regulator, it's licensed as a contraceptive. And if they're using it as a period regulator, they're using it outside its licensed indication and they usually don't, don't mind about doing that. And there are countless examples of things being used outside their licensed indication and that are regularly done So to to sort of pick this as an example of of something that couldn't possibly be contemplated, you do get the very um, strong feeling that actually they feel uncomfortable for another reason that they're not willing to put a name to.
0: What's the answer?
2: Um, Well, I think the GMC's recent pronouncement is probably going to be be very helpful that it that it isn't reasonable to suggest that this is you know tremendously dangerous difficult complicated or expensive um to deal with them kind of by by turns but not necessarily in that order Um, the expensive bit of it um isn't true at all the the oestrogens that nina's taking um to be frank probably the the packet costs more than the tablets if you see what i mean Uh, the only thing with any even reasonable bit of expense attached to it are gonadotropin-releasing hormone analogues and they are routinely and extensively used in prostate cancer in men and endometriosis in women and um, are drugs with a very long track history and they're not particularly expensive um, androgens used to treat patient, patients who were assigned female at birth are also inexpensive medications um, the patient isn't going to be in every week needing blood tests once you've worked out what dose gives the right level of estrogens, you're looking at about six monthly monitoring blood tests and once patients have been discharged it's more like about annually it's certainly easier than prescribing for somebody with a thyroid problem or diabetes and they are the kind of thing that gps are routinely doing with no difficulty at all and as you've heard from nina who who paints an extremely typical picture actually things tend to go really rather well and you end up with somebody with a hugely improved quality of life who feels an awful lot better.
0: So there's part of the problem is perhaps do you, do you agree part of the problem is uh, the, the medical training of GP or medical knowledge around this topic for GPs maybe needs to be better would you agree there?
2: Oh yeah that's certainly true um, uh, uh, something that's often said to me by patients is well you know why don't you go and simply talk to the GPs but I think, you know, the patient needs to bear in mind that there are around 100,000 GPs and if all of us spent our time talking to all GPs, you know, we'd be a 1,000 years old before we were even close to being finished. It's not something that's um, part of medical school curricula, certainly not when those GPs were training and it's only pretty patchily so now and tends, bizarrely, to be kind of bracketed together with um, things to do with sexual function, even though gender identity and sexual orientation have got no particular connection with each other.
0: And what about post-transition, James? Your article mentions other examples of the NHS
2: providing poor care for trans people. Yeah, this is something that exercises me considerably because I think there is a tendency particularly in the higher reaches of the NHS to to see um, gender dysphoria and kindred matters chiefly as as a a question of patients getting um, speedy, timely access to good quality clinics. Um, The speedy and timely bit of it isn't what it could be because um, patients are often inappropriately referred to local psychiatric services when they should be referred directly to a gender identity clinic which they can be, any patient can access any any clinic in England of, of their choice. Um, the problem is that once patients have been discharged from clinic and everything's over, um, they're just normal human beings with exactly the same sort of ailments and lives that everybody else has. And as they get older, they'll trot through life getting gallstones and cataracts and ingrown toenails and Crohn's disease and cancer and everything else that people get. Um, and their experience of the health services is, is often that their earlier change of gender role is is mentioned when it really isn't relevant. If you're being sent to podiatry to have your ingrowing toenail done, the, the referral letter really doesn't need to read, you know, please see this transsexual person who had a change of gender role 15 years ago and now has an ingrowing toenail. It's not relevant. You wouldn't describe somebody as, please see this homosexual man who's with an ingrowing toenail because it's not relevant. This isn't relevant either. And it's the... It's the experience where every ailment you get, uh, a particularly psychological ailment you get, is is somehow deemed inevitably to be connected with your earlier change of gender role. You can't develop a, a phobia of wasps without it being somehow supposedly connected. And then you must go back to the gender identity clinic when there's no need for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mention in your piece that some, some patients are still... Uh, may still be referred to by their old title or legal sex uh, years after hormone treatment or gender reassignment surgery. They may, You say you, they may be a re- admitted to the wrong ward, checked in as the wrong sex or told to use the wrong toilet or the disabled access toilet, despite not having a disability. Nina, have you experienced any of these kinds of problems when using the health service for something that has got nothing to do with
1: your gender identity? Um. Fortunately, I haven't. No, um, once I had my name change done, um, it was I found I was leading the GP. You know, he was asking me what, what, you know, what's normally done in these circumstances and things like that. And I said, Well, just treat me like a normal, normal female, a normal woman. Um, so fortunately, no, I've not had any of that.
0: Coming back to what you were talking about um, earlier, as uh, uh, James, if um, GPs refuse. Uh, t- to treat, can they be sanctioned? Are they in breach of professional obligations or duties?
2: Well, after the GMC's really rather useful um, and, I think, commendably clear advice recently, um, we're waiting for Do you mind a...
0: reminding listeners what that advice was?
2: Well, yes. It uh, says essentially that um, you should be prescribing, provided the patient is actually you know, locked into a reputable, sensible NHS gender identity clinic, which will have people who've got years of experience, um, our own clinic has a consultant endocrinologist on the, on the clinic staff, then there isn't any reason why in that rather supportive sort of environment um, you shouldn't be prescribing. If you don't know anything about it, maybe now is the time to be educated, and there are links to education on there as well clearly there's a middle path to be drawn. You can't have anybody simply walk into a practice and demand that you prescribe X, Y, and Z, and you're somehow obliged to do it. And I don't think anybody is suggesting that is the case. But if the patient is already locked into, you know, a specialist service, which has given sensible advice on the background of, of well, in my case, about 30 years worth of experience, and all of my colleagues are at 20 and 15 years of worth of experience, then, yeah, that is a, a reasonable thing for you to do. And if you still refuse to do so, I think, you know, the suggestion is there would be some questions as to what the basis of that refusal is.
0: Nina, what, what do you think doctors could do to help people going through similar situation that you've been, you're going through, you've been through? The, you
1: know, transgender and, you know, gender... Um dysphoria is growing as a field of medicine or, or you know if you can call it medicine um, I oh, just I think, think you he, probably can <laughs> okay GPs need to be open to learning really you know my GP once once he knew that actually um you know I was gonna be looking after myself more because I cared about my life you know um that's half the job done and you know he's bringing medical students in now to talk to me and and you know see see them putting the injection in things like that and He's actually been turned around. You know, I, I feel really guilty now at giving him the, uh, the, you know, the, um, the, the my letter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel really bad, but you know, I had to do it. And actually, he's he's turned around. He's actually open to learning, and you know, and I think, yeah. I. I... Yeah, I do, and you know it's only going to grow. You know, the, the this part of the, of the, you know, this branch of medicine is only going to grow.
2: I think Nina's dead right. It is going to grow because the number of referrals to gender identity clinics globally, not just in this country, um, has risen sort of every year since the middle of the last century. Certainly Charing Cross, where I work, the number of referrals has doubled every five years since 1966. And at the kind of missing party here, in a sense, it would have been nice to have that person here, would be Nina's GP, because um, this is somebody who started off with probably fairly typical sets of concerns, not a malevolent person but just somebody who's very, very anxious, and if I had a pound for every time that GPs tell me, do you know what, it went easier than I thought, and do you know what, this person who was a very troubled individual, and I was worried they'd get more troubled, and actually things have settled down hugely, and now they've got a job as a secretary, and you know, or as a welder and fitter, and they feel hugely happier, it hasn't been a huge amount of difficulty, you know, then I'd be a wealthy man, because You know, the idea behind treatment is that the patients end up better than they were when they started. That's the kind of basis of all medical practice, and this is no different. The reason we do what we do in gender identity clinics is because people do end up massively better than when we start for what has been a very low input in terms of financial cost and not a huge amount of GP time. I can think of very few things that offer such tremendous improvements in quality of life for so little investment.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us today, James and Nina. You can read James's article in full on the BMJ.com and uh, send us a response to let us know what you think. Thanks for listening.